Hey Logo Geeks, it's Ian Padgett here and this week I'm joined by Emily Oberman of Pentagram to discover how she designs identities for TV and film. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to Webflow who have kindly sponsored this episode. If you're a designer, you'll be used to learning complex visual software like Photoshop, Sketch, Figma and so on, but none of these tools output production code but webflow changes that giving us the power of code in a visual interface allowing you to directly build whatever you have in mind without the need for any developer it's become my go-to tool for any web design work both for my own website and for clients websites too simply because i have full control over the entire design even at every single breakpoint from desktop down to mobile. Plus, it's fairly easy to add interactions and animations too, such as parallax scrolling, uh, mouse or cursor-based animation triggers, custom keyframe and After Effects-based animations. So you can do some really stunning design work all on your own. I highly recommend that you go and check Webflow out for yourself, and you can do that by heading to wfl.io forward slash logo geek and for the first 50 who use the promo code logo geek you'll also be able to get 10% off any new annual plan so this week's episode is one that I'm extremely excited about I'm a huge fan of the design agency pentagram but I'm also a really big film fan too and have been most of my life Over the past few years, there have been some pretty big movie identities that have been designed by Pentagram. This includes the DC Entertainment logo, uh, the Justice League film, uh, J.K. Rowling's films, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and The Crimes of Grindelwald, uh, Steven Spielberg's adaptation of Ready Player One, Birds of Prey, the Warner Brothers logo. This list goes on and on and the person behind all of this is the pentagram partner emily oberman for that reason i've been hoping to get emily oberman on this podcast for quite some time Uh, she's actually been at the top of my wish list for a while now but it was after interviewing jesse reed he used to work under michael bayrou at pentagram and he actually knew emily Um, that this was made possible. Jesse kindly connected me with Emily and I was honored and excited that she kindly agreed to come on. Emily has had an incredible career. After graduation, she joined the legendary design studio M&Co, where she collaborated with Tibor Kalman. She also co-founded the design studio number 17, uh, which operated for coincidentally around 17 years. And it's here where she worked on the identities for The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon, and Saturday Night Live 2. And she's been designing the opening sequence for that for uh, 19 years now. Then she joined Pentagram's New York office as a partner in 2012. In this interview, we discover the surprisingly relatable story of how she got uh, to work on identities for blockbuster movies. 
We also uncover the process her and her team take when working on logos and identities for film. And we end with an honest and open discussion of how she was approached by Pentagram and learn what it's like to be a partner at one of the most well-known design agencies in the world. So enough talking from me. I am honored to share with you the interview with Emily Oberman. So you've become really well known for your work in film, having worked on logos and identities for films such as Ready Player One, the Fantastic Beast films, Birds of Prey, Warner Brothers. You've done uh, lots within film now. How did you get into working on branding for TV and film? That is a great question. And it's, it kind of goes back a little bit of a long way. And so I'll try to sum it up. Um, uh, when I went to college, I went to Cooper Union in New York City. And while I was at Cooper Union, and even in high school, I had kind of an acting bug. And so at a certain point in at Cooper, I took a leave of absence to go and study acting. I had done it a lot in high school, and I wanted to sort of live that dream. And I did that for about a year. Uh, I studied with Stella Adler in New York City. And um, after about a year, I realized that I didn't really want to be an actress. I didn't have the sort of constitution for that. So when I went back to school at Cooper, I started studying filmmaking, which was sort of like a way to combine design and theater or performance in a way that was satisfying to me. And then I went to work at M & Company and at M & Company, they did title designs and some TV stuff. And when we first started doing more TV, I immediately volunteered to be the person who did the video and the motion graphics at M & Company. And so that sort of got me really excited about doing that sort of thing, working with Tibor, doing that, and just the sort of way that motion moves and tells a story in a way that's like a movie, but isn't a movie. So from there, when I moved to number 17 and then to Pentagram, we continued to do that because Bonnie was working in a similar way. And so at number 17, we had a really nice um, combined way of looking at motion graphics and stuff for television and film. And then that sort of continued to blossom. And the, the big change was when we started doing the titles for Saturday Night Live. And then that sort of became this starting point or inspiration for a lot of the work that was moving forward. And then when I moved to Pentagram, uh, we were approached by a nonprofit called Film Independent, and they are kind of like the AIGA of film. They do work putting together um, independent filmmakers. Like if you want to direct a film and someone else wants to write a film, they find a way to get you together. They also offer a lot of programs and education for young and upcoming independent filmmakers. And they came to us with no money and just a, you know, a dream. Um, and so because I love what they do and love film and love motion graphics and love design, they were just this wonderful, wonderful client for us. And so we started doing the design for them 
and as and they were a, you know were and still are a terrific client of ours and from there as we were doing their identity we were also doing strategy and i was brought on by a special board to do this work cuz nonprofits have a board who pretty much run what they do and on this board uh the head of the board was these two women named uh, Mary Sweeney and Sue Kroll, Mary Sweeney being an Oscar-winning fantastic editor and Sue Kroll being, at the time, uh, the head of marketing at Warner Brothers. I didn't think anything about that. I just thought they were brilliant, wonderful women, and this was an amazing project. And so we worked on this, and it went really well. Um, at the same time, we also started doing the Spirit Awards for them, which is a whole other joy in my life. Um, but one day Sue Kroll called me and said, I'm having a little trouble with a, you know, an identity that we're not quite getting right for a new film. And I, we love the work that you did on Spirit Awards. Would you be interested in taking a crack at this? And I love Sue and I love the work that we did. And so I said, yes, immediately without knowing anything about it. And Sue said, great. It's this movie. Um, it's called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. It's not <laughs> kind of a prequel to the Harry Potter series. And I like dropped the phone. <laughs> you know, I'm a huge fan of Harry Potter and the idea of doing something like this for a person that I admired so much with content that I admired so much was just phenomenal. Um, and so we started working on the Fantastic Beasts stuff and that went very well. And then Sue... Um, asked us to look at the DC logo, which is also a Warner Brothers property. And so we did that and that went really well. And then they would come to us and ask us to do logos for films. And that just sort of evolved and snowballed. We did the second uh, Fantastic Beasts movie. And that's sort of how we started working on that. I work with a, mostly with a man named John Danford and now a woman named Blair Rich. And together, they are just a really smart, really engaged client. And that's my favorite kind of client. They're focused and they know what they want and they understand their films. And we get to sort of stretch our wings. And we always try to add, because we're film geeks, we always try to add a level of meaning to the, what the logo is. So like the Ready Player One logo is in itself a maze that you have to travel through to get to the egg at the end, which is in the O of one. Um, and things like that really delight me. Like when the logo went up first on Instagram, it took like two hours for fans to find the maze in it. And then they started <laughs> finding it and drawing it. So that's sort of the long way of saying how it started. And my takeaway from that is kind of a, hey, you never know. Like I didn't think at the time that we started working for this nonprofit that I just loved, that it would lead to, oh, and not just that, but we recently redesigned the whole Warner Brothers identity. So the whole thing sort of snowballed into this wonderful collaboration with this studio that I love, doing work for something that I'm so passionate about that basically also started with the germ of my wanting to be an actor. <laughs> um, so it's just a delightful timeline, I guess. Oh yeah, very, very much so. And you know what? It's it's very relatable because um, 
I'm, I'm just going to be straight up and say when I imagine pentagram, like a pentagram partner, that is um, in terms of being a, a graphic designer, that's very high up there. And uh, for most of the audience, that almost in itself seems like a, an unobtainable goal. But it's surprising to hear that even in your position, you're getting that domino effect where something happens and then that leads to something else. And, and then uh, you get more and more opportunities off the back of uh, that. Can I just ask that uh, non-profit, I, I apologize, I can't remember what the company was called, but was that voluntary free work that you did uh, whilst at Pentagram or, or was it just like a low cost thing that you guys did? I mean, I would say it was somewhere in between the two. Yeah. Um, yeah. They did. They paid us, and I would say if you're calculating the hours per amount of money that they paid us, it's an extreme. You know, it's an extremely low return. But again, yeah. one of the beauties of Pentagram is that you're able to do that sort of thing. There's a you know very Robin Hood situation. Like Paul has been doing the public theater for twenty five years for free. But it's a beautiful, wonderful project that has done wonders for Pentagram. Like it's not to mention that we all get to see Shakespeare in the park for free, which I know it's free in the first <laughs> place, but we all don't have to stand in line for it. It's just part of like what Pentagram offers to everyone who works there. And, you know, when we can all go back to theater, it's, a, you know, a delightful perk of working at Pentagram. And so back to film independent. For the original branding, they paid us a very small amount of money, about which I think we certainly spent much more time on the design. Yeah. And then the Spirit Awards that we do now, which is kind of the anti-Oscars, it's the independent film version of the Oscars. It's always the day before. It's a little bit more irreverent. It's all independent film. It's a little bit... Um, more inclusive, I would say. Well, it's a lot of it more inclusive, but yeah. we do the Spirit Awards and they pay us for that, but all of that money is on the screen. Like we use the money for the production of what right. we do and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I look forward every year to what we're going to do next for the Spirit Awards. It's a pure joy, kind of in the same way that Saturday Night Live is that we've been doing for almost 25 years, first at number 17 and now at Pentagram. Um, you might think that that's a high budget project. It is not. But every two to four years, we get to redesign the open. So it's this exercise in keeping something the same and making it totally different at the same time. And there are two other things that I love with the same passion that I love filmmaking. And those are New York City. I'm a born New Yorker. So New York City and comedy. Um, I have the soul of a comedian, I would say. I'm not as funny as Kate McKinnon. But so the idea that we get to sort of do something every few years that is sort of the embodiment of New York and comedy is another joyful kind of work for me. Mm -hmm. And for, right. I think, everyone on the team who gets to work on it. Oh, yeah. I can, I can hear that just the way that you talk about it, that you absolutely 
love working on these projects. And it's nice to think that uh, even at the level that you are at, you're able to make the choice between uh, projects that basically pay the bills and the ones that you really want to get stuck into because you you absolutely love it. I, I wouldn't mind spending some time going into how you work on one of these projects because um, I'm going to title this episode something around creating uh, identities for movies. So I'd like to go into the process of how you're working on, say, a logo or an identity for a film. So what does the process look like when you're designing an identity for a film do you have to watch the film or uh could you share share with us what usually happens when you're working on a an identity for a movie of course i can share that um the first thing that happens is you read the script or you watch a rough cut of the movie and sometimes both like sometimes you read the script and then a little while later you get to watch a rough cut of the film which i again in the like, oh, this makes me so happy kind of way, <laughs> reading the script of a film that is not yet out there or watching the rough cut and watching the rough cut more than once seeing it <laughs> change is, again, this like little, like it it solves the, the theatrical bug in me. It's like the smell of the grease paint. Um, and it's also really great when it's kind of a science fiction movie and there's a lot of um, CGI. So you're watching the rough cut before the CGI. So a lot of times you're seeing the actors on green screen in green outfits with ping pong balls on them or on weird stilts to make them at the eye height of whatever monster they're fighting. It's awesome. <laughs> Love it. So that's always the first part of the process. Even if the logo itself is incredibly simple, Knowing that backstory, doing the sort of method acting of the design part of it is really important. And I work very, very, I'm not a lone wolf. My husband, who is Paul Sayer, who is another graphic designer, is the opposite. He is a lone wolf. He works by himself. He does, all, every, you know, he, it's harder for him to work with other people than it is for him to work alone. I am the opposite. I'm chatty and interested in collaboration and always excited about what someone else brings to it as opposed to what I bring to it. Or even when someone takes a tiny little idea that I have and turns it into something phenomenal. Um, and I learned that from Tibor. Tibor was incredibly collaborative in the way we worked together. He was, you know, always interested in sort of the best idea wins. And so that's what it was like at M and Company. And now that's what I've brought to my team. And my team is selected for their design ability, their brains, and their, you know, their their cultural expanse and their wit. Um, I have a very witty, very intelligent team. And so we all read the script, or as many of us are on the project, all read the script. And then we get together and brainstorm and talk about what the ideas would be. And, you know, usually I have a few ideas of my own and then they have ideas as well. And then they go off and sketch, basically. They take my ideas and work on them. They take their own ideas and work on them. And then we do a variety of pin-up sessions where we look at when people, you know, used to pin things up in a room together. Um, and we look at the work and 
edit it down altogether. And I, I think I'm pretty good at finding the like top three to five ideas and, you know, judging them into what they need to be. And then we work on what the shape and the form of the logo is, but we also begin to dive into what it will be out in the real world. And we do, I would say, elaborate proof of concepts for films. And, you know, while we're doing that, like let's say we're doing a billboard of what the logo would look like with, you know, the stars on it or something that relates to what the subject matter is. At the same time, because we can't help ourselves, we also will write a tagline um, that goes under it. You know, the one I can think of right now is when we were working on Birds of Prey, one of the taglines that we came up with was Pray for Gotham. (laughs) And while we were presenting that, the client loved that. And that became the teaser campaign tagline. So we think of things in this 360 degree way that again, if something makes all of us feel joy or feel like it's smart or laugh really hard, we use it. And now, in fact, sometimes they come to us at the very beginning to write taglines. So that also evolved into something that we got you know, known for and that is now being part of what we're how the way we're used in the process. Um, So, and then from there we present to the client and then they have to take that to the next level at the studio. And then we make revisions and then that goes to the director of the film for final approval. Um, And then from there, we usually make, you know, a few versions of it. There's usually a, monogram or some sort of shorthand form for it. And then there's whatever stylistic imagery, like the Fantastic Beast stuff is very chiseled and gold or chiseled and stone. And the Ready Player One was chrome. Um, So that sort of gets added on top. But the logos have to, have to, have to work first and foremost in black and white as a concept that you can understand without the bells and whistles of the renderings. Mm-hmm. I love what you're saying about working with your team in the way that you do. So I'm I'm curious to dig into the part a little bit where you are brainstorming those ideas. And uh, so you said that you get your team to sketch out ideas. Is that just like sketching on paper or when you use the, the, the word sketch, you mean like rough mock-ups in like Adobe Illustrator? <laughs> it's a little bit of both. Right. Um, I would say I used to sort of be of the mind of don't touch the computer till you've sketched by hand. Um, but now I sort of say to the team that they can present the ideas in whatever way best conveys the idea. So often if it's something that I've sketched out on in a notebook myself or can describe myself that immediately goes into illustrator or whatever to sort of start to get refined. And some designers come in with things extremely sketchy, but off the computer. 
and some come in with hand drawings to explain things. And my theory is whatever it takes to get the initial idea across is all that we need. And it's sort of up to the individual. Sometimes it's just, uh, you know, words and a mood board. You know, sometimes that's enough to convey the idea. Sometimes it's words and a little piece of motion that we find um, that sort of helps understand what the pacing of something would be. So, and, and again, it's extreme. Like it feels a little like a college crit when we do it because we're all talking and I, I really like pushback from the team. Like if I say, Oh, I don't know about this one. It's not, I don't see it. I don't can They say, no, no, no. What I really think is this one is about is, I don't know is the the lightness and the form and maybe it's not drawn right yet. I am happy to hear that and say, okay, let's see what this turns into as opposed to just needing it to be what I think something is or needs to be at the beginning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, when you're working with that team, they've all read the script or watched the uh, rough cut of the film as the manager of the team are you giving them any kind of direction for what you have in mind or the way that you see it or, or are you really treating it as a collaborative process and letting them loose to to do what they want and you simply direct it when it all comes back together when the team present those uh, potential ideas to you usually I have a sense of something usually I have you know a few ideas that I toss out at the beginning that are like, I'm thinking of this as, uh, you know, a a big giant bowl type that's going to fill the screen or whatever that is. And, you know, it should feel like a sans serif and it needs a noir quality about it. And sometimes it's, you know, as direct as it needs to be this, 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 or this. And sometimes it's, you know, a very light, general direction, and then they go off. I've become, I think, a very good um, art director, or creative director. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think I'm very good at either pulling out the best ideas from what comes around in that first crit session. And I'm also really good at taking something and changing it to have another layer of idea that you know sort of brings it home. Um, I, I think in a slightly different way than the team, I think, but again, we're all sort of blending together in the way we think and work. Um, but to answer your question, generally I have a sense and a few ideas at the beginning and then the team takes those, evolves them and does their own. And I would say, I don't know what the ratio is of how often it's still the one that's my first idea or something completely new that the team came up with but i i love it either way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well like you said you go with whatever the best option is and it doesn't matter where that originated from as long as you're solving the problem in the most effective way yeah and i love and trust the people on my team, they are picked. I think of, I always refer to us as sort of the island of misfit toys. Like we're <laughs> all quirky and we're all incredibly different, but we all have a similar 
passion and thought process. And we all feed off each other and bring uh, the best out in each other's strengths. And like I said, everyone is a, is quirky in their own way, which is a joy. I, and, I, and I'm making it sound like it's all fun and games and like we work friggin' hard. You know, we do things over and over and over to get it right. We work, you know, late nights when we have to. And I, you know, sort of puzzle and worry over something. I, you know, like a worry stone. I mean, like I, I needle it and noodle it and needle it and, until it's right. And it's hard, but it's nice to be able to work on things that you get joy from. Mm-hmm, very much so. And I can tell just by the way that you're talking about it, that you absolutely, absolutely love doing this, which is so nice to hear. I just want to take a short break to thank the sponsor of this podcast, Webflow. Webflow gives designers the power of code in a visual interface, allowing you to directly build whatever you have in mind without the need for engineers. Webflow's whole thesis is that designers are used to learning complex visual software like Photoshop, Sketch, Figma, and so on, but none of those tools actually output production code. Webflow takes that next step by bringing the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript into a visual interface so we designers can build completely custom designs without worrying about writing code. Webflow's rich interactions and animations toolset allows you to bring your designs to life with advanced features like parallax scrolling, uh, mouse cursor-based animation triggers, custom keyframe, and After Effects-based animations too. To learn more about Webflow, head to wfl.io forward slash logogeek. And for the first 50 who use the promo code logogeek, you'll be able to get 10% off any new annual plan. So let's get back to the interview. I want to go back to, so you've had your team come up with those ideas, you gave them some kind of direction, and then they are coming back to you. And you've said that you're having some kind of team presentation uh, where everyone is sharing what they've worked on, and then you're choosing a handful of directions to to uh, continue with how does that look is everyone pinning up on some kind of board or do you get around on a, a boardroom table and put everything in the middle how does that part of that process look it's like an old-fashioned wall crit we put up and again in the time of covid everything is different and harder right but we usually are in a room together where again the energy of everyone being together sort of feeds off each other and we literally pin some stuff up on the wall and look at it and then this is sort of a running joke with the team i usually have a pen and a bottle of whiteout <laughs> and go through and redraw or we tear pieces of paper off and pull things from one logo and another and sort of make this collagey drawn hand drawn on version of the you know the logos that are evolving but and so it's very um analog when we're doing that and um you know again the like the whiteout that i use to sort of carve away 
at letter forms and then add little pieces with a Sharpie or a small pen, depending on it. Or again, like I said, tearing something off from another thing and placing on it. It, it feels very organic, the process. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, like, whenever I'm like, where's the whiteout? Um, <laughs> it's, it's a sort of funny moment for us. I also do want to say, like, not every client is as perfect or fantastic as what I'm describing. I think that you're asking questions about the film and motion stuff, which is kind of, you know, a hard job, but also a guilty pleasure at the same time. Mm -hmm, but there are mm -hmm. other, there are, I don't want to make it sound like we're all skipping through the office all the time. There's a lot of trek and dry to use a Yiddish expression that I'm not even really yeah. sure what it means, but <laughs> on the projects and, you know, some things are, you know, a, a, have a very different cadence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th I think you made that clear and everyone knows, uh, most people listening to this, um, I'm making the assumption that they are graphic designers. They worked in studios. They worked for themselves. They know it's not all fun and games, even when it is like a project that you that you really, really want to work on. It's uh, it's hard, but yeah, I think as an outsider, you only see the final thing. And uh, in your case, because you are working on a lot of these big films, I can see why. Uh, you, you felt that you needed to uh, share that. There's also some heartbreak. Like we worked on a film that I'm, I'm going to refrain from mentioning what it was. We worked on the film. We worked really hard. We were excited and thrilled about where it went. They chose a logo. The director approved it. Um, we were so happy and proud. And then, you know, two months later, the director changed on the film oh. and the new director had a whole other vision and had a whole other team I think, right. that he wanted to work with. And so after thinking that this had happened for a long time, that logo, you know, died. That's a little bit heartbreaking. And then even, you know, right now working on some films that, had to stop production because of COVID and those will come back, but all of a sudden you're not, you're, you were in the middle of something that you were working hard on and it just stops. Yeah. So that yeah. also happens, especially in an industry like film or entertainment. It just, mm, that's, mm. that's just the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. With those projects where that happened, where, you know, the director changed, are you allowed to show any of the work that you did or is it just literally pushed to one side and forgotten about? <laughs> you are not supposed to show the work. I do not generally show the work that didn't get chosen even like that sort right. of, that has to stay in the vault. Uh, you know, I will confess to sometimes showing it to like a group of students who have yeah, I think that's different. It's not public. It's yeah, not, not public, <laughs> and it's not anything that they take away with them. It's just something yeah. they see, you know. And again, it's nice for students to know how hard uh, you work and how many different ideas get presented and how things, you know, evolve. But no, I can 
never show anyone the beautiful logos that we did. That is such a shame. <laughs> I know one day you're going to have to speak to whoever is necessary to create a book or something to bring all of this stuff out because I know uh, film fans in particular with the film and, and TV projects you're working on, that would be so fascinating to see for them. But as a graphic designer, personally, I would absolutely love to see what's in the archive. <laughs> I think that would be like, you know, or I'd, I'd personally see that almost like a holiday going through the archives and seeing uh, what could have been. <laughs> oh, I, I totally agree. And I would love to. And, you know, maybe someday you're right. Like we could approach the yeah. studios and say, I, I just feel like there's a certain we want to only put, we, the studio, want people to just see yeah. the vision that we want them to see. We want to just have them know what the story we want to tell about this particular film is. Yeah. Well, so I get it, yeah. even though. Yeah. One day. <laughs> so um, another question I wanted to ask. So you've worked with the team, you've, you've narrowed it down and you've agreed on some kind of direction. When it comes around to presenting that work to your client what are you showing them are you showing them one direction that you you feel is going to work for the film or are you showing them a, a handful of different potential options we are showing them a handful um there are different clients where we show one and then there are clients that we show between three and five and then for the film stuff we generally show more right um we show between five and I would say, which is very unusual, but Hollywood is a very different entity from regular branding. You know, when they do a design for a poster for a film, they will look at a hundred different versions, which is why I think it's rare when posters for films, no offense to all my clients, there are posters for films that generally look like they've looked at a hundred and made it into one thing. I will also say, I don't feel that about a lot of the work that my delightful client, John Stanford creates. I think all the work that he does for all the marketing for the films that we work on together is amazingly smart and beautiful. Um, but there are a lot of I know, you know, like there are websites about movie posters that all look the same. <laughs> and so we generally present more um, than normal for the film work. Sometimes it's because we just love them all and we can't bear to part with them. But for film, I don't think we've ever gone in and presented one idea. But again, in that sort of world of accidental presentations, when we were working on Ready Player One, one of the things that we showed as part of our proof of concept was taking Ready Player One. It's about this dystopian world where everyone sort of lives in this virtual reality that was created by an eccentric billionaire who was obsessed with the 1980s. And the 80s are a big point in the film. There are a lot of 80s references in both the original book and the film itself. And... First of all, it's brilliant to make a movie about the future that has all these touch points from the past that everyone can relate to. It's just brilliant. The book, too. 
So while we were doing our proof of concept stuff, one of the things we presented was classic 80s films with the logo for Ready Player One done in the style of the poster from that movie, like The Breakfast Club or Goonies. Um, and when we presented that, they loved that idea. And then they turned that into a poster campaign that they made themselves, but that was based on our thought process. So mm -hmm. I would say, even though that was part of a presentation where we showed a bunch of ideas, that was a singular idea that turned into something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of my other questions is more to do with the files that you provide. It's something that I've often wondered. So for Wizard World in and uh, Wizard and World, sorry, and Ready Player One, there's lots of textures, uh, glows, highlights, and so on. How are those actually created? Because the usual advice for most designers is when you provide files to your client, they should be vectors because vectors are scalable. But those, I assume that they are done in Photoshop, because as far as I'm aware, that's the most practical, most easiest way to go about creating those more elaborate logos. How are those done? Is, is that the way it is? Are they in Photoshop and just really big files? Um, well, first of all, we do present things in vector. Again, like I said, all the logos have to work in flat black and white. So that's mm -hmm. point one. Point two is that we make detailed Photoshop files that look like what the, you know, the final piece is supposed to be. For The Wizarding World or Fantastic Beasts or Ready Player One, we make those. But then the studio remakes them based on our Photoshop files. They redraw them with a um, much higher resolution piece in the end so they can be scaled for film and so they can have all of those details that need to be there when you zoom in on something. So the final, final, final version of it is created by the studio or the company that's actually doing the physical animation for it. So we give them the template and the style and then they make it perfect. And then they give it back to us so we can put it in our portfolio or on our website. Hmm. So that file that you give them, is there like a maximum size that you would typically do it at, even though they are basically recreating it in whatever the format they're using? <laughs> um, yes, we do it as large as we can, but I am going to confess to if your next question is, what is that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay. I can ask someone on my team and they can tell me. But, um, <laughs> I'd be curious to know. It was just, just out of interest, to be honest, because I, I've seen it and I, I often looked at film posters and the logos actually used in the films themselves. And you can see that they're really big. <laughs> they're really big on the screen, especially if they're like um, 8K or whatever. I, I, I don't know if films go even beyond that. You know, they're, they're big. Um, so I, I was just imagining that they would have to be extremely large PSDs, but it's fascinating to hear that the film studio is then taking it one step further and recreating it in some way. Do you know what they're using? Is it is it still Photoshop or or are they 
building it in 3D or something. <laughs> I think they're building it in some 3D program that, again, I can't tell you the name of. Uh, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> it, it's good to know because as a graphic designer, you're providing PSD files. And for, for me and the bulk of the audience listening to this, that's sufficient information. So um, I can always try and reach out to <laughs> someone else and get the, the next part of the process. <laughs> I, I think if we were a, a, you know, a bigger company that only did film title work, we would be doing that ourselves. But because right. we are generalists and, you know, film title work or film logo work is only a piece of what we do, we mm -hmm. are not set up with that level of tech that they need. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who's to say that someday we wouldn't be? Um, you know, it used to be that you go to do motion graphics, you went to a facility and use their technology and their machines to do that. And we do that all ourselves now. So maybe that will change. But right now, that is the way it is. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you ended up going in that direction. Um, but anyway, we have just over 10 minutes uh, left. So I have one last big question for you. Uh, so I read that in 1993, you co-founded the design studio number 17. And then 17 years later, you closed up and joined Pentagram, becoming partner number 19. That is a huge deal. How did that happen? Well, so number 17 was me and my partner, Bonnie Siegler, and we had the company and we worked together, you know, wonderfully and happily and beautifully for many, many years. And I think then at, you know, as we were coming up to the 17 year mark, we were starting to have slightly different focuses or interests. And we decided, and Tina, technically not exactly 17 years, but close enough. And we, right. decided, <laughs> we just decided together that that seemed like a perfect amount of time for us to have had this, you know, beautiful, collaborative, fun, funny um, studio together. It was just a really nice, tidy way to wrap it up. Um, and it, you know, it gave the story a nice arc. Um, and so we made that decision. And then coincidentally, uh, Pentagram said that they were interested in talking and, you know, it had always been a dream of mine to be part of Pentagram and it, it was incredibly flattering and thrilling, you know, and it's like one of those things for me, it was kind of like, oh, the Yankees called, I, I sort of can't not <laughs> give this a thought. Um, and I don't know. I used to know enough about baseball to know whether that's a perfect reference, but it seems like a really good reference. <laughs> yeah, um, it does, yeah. And so I went through the long and grueling uh, process of what it takes to become a pentagram partner, uh, which is, you know, you have to submit a portfolio, you have to talk, you have to be able to, to uh, you have to f go and meet every single partner and talk to them because it has to be a unanimous decision amongst the then, I guess, 18 partners. Um, and so it's nerve wracking because you meet all these people who are iconic and who, 
um, or, you know, basically judging you. Uh, and so it's, it's, I mean, I was friends with Paula and Michael Beirut beforehand and I knew Luke, um, and, but I certainly knew of, oh, and I knew Abbott really well. We went to college together. Oh, and Eddie was my student at Yale. <laughs> so it's funny when your student becomes a pentagram partner before, you know, before you do. Um, but it was everyone else was someone who I had admired and whose work I knew. And so it was, uh, I, I don't want to say frightening experience, but it was intense, really, really yeah. intense. And those individual conversations that you have with them, you, you also get to know all of them really in a nice way because they talk to you as much as you talk to them and you get to sort of understand if this is a group of people that you want to be part of. Um, and of course, they all are. Pentagram is an, a funny and interesting place because I think people think of Pentagram as this like big entity. That is Pentagram. But Pentagram is a collection of individual partners who are all independent thinkers, who all have a voice in how the company works, who all, you know, it's another version of the island of misfit toys because every partner is very different. And it's a very eclectic and personal way of working. And it's a, a group of real human beings who have passion about what they do. And I say real human beings, not like other companies don't have human beings in them. But I think it's just different from what the perception of Pentagram yeah. is. Um, and so then after it took about a year, and then there's a voting process that happens at a partner's meeting where you are not there and you have no idea how it's going to go. And then if you're lucky, you get a call saying you're in. And you also have to have a body of work and a certain level of, I don't want to say fame, but you have to be known yeah. in the design community to be asked to be a pentagram partner in general. That's changing a little bit now, but you have to have an established career. Um, mm -hmm. So there is that aspect of it. And then once you're brought into the partnership, you are kindly uh, given sort of a, an on-ramp of a bunch of years where like you are sort of learning the ropes and everyone helps you get work. Everyone helps you understand what pentagram is, which is a little mm, inscrutable, even when you're on the inside, like pentagram works like no other agency or design studio that I've ever known. And the partners are incredibly supportive of each other. Like pentagram works in a way where Nobody is looking at the other saying, why aren't you doing enough? Everyone is looking at themselves and saying, how can I do better? There's not a level of competition between the, the partners. There is a really nice supportive group. Um, it's kind of socialist in the way it works in that everyone has a voice and everyone's voice matters. There are certainly some people whose voices are clearer or have been there longer or more embedded in what pentagram needs to be, but you learn that as you go. And Paula once said to me, eh, it takes about seven years for you to really understand what pentagram is and how it works. And I've just crossed my eight year mark and I'm still a little on the high. Oh, is this really? 
you know, I, I still feel like a young and new partner, even though I am neither young nor new. But it, it is a very supportive organization as you come in because, you know, Pentagram has a, a, a large footprint and yeah. there is an expectation of working with big, big brands and nobody judges or forces that on you at first. You are brought in and supported as kind of a Padawan, I would say, um, as you move through time and clients and concepts that evolves. Mm -hmm. Well, Emily, that was absolutely fascinating. And I know it's one of those topics I could ask questions for hours, but um, I I know that you do have a call now, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much for coming on uh, from me and from everyone listening. It's really been a pleasure. I am a fan of this podcast. I think you've asked fantastic questions and I'm really happy to have been here. That was an absolutely fantastic episode. Emily, if you're listening, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing so much with us. It was absolutely fantastic. And anyone that's listening to this, if you have enjoyed it as much as I did, make sure to let me and Emily know by giving us a shout out on social media. Now, if you want to learn more about Emily, head to the Pentagram website, pentagram.com. Alternatively, check out the show notes for this episode, where I'll link to that, all of their social profiles, uh, links to any books or resources that we discussed in the interview, as well as a full transcription too. So to find the show notes, head to logogeek.uk forward slash 98. And if you're keen to discuss anything mentioned in this interview with me and 10,000 logo designers from around the world, join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. It's free to join and it's very active. So if you have any questions or you need any feedback or any support, it is the place to go online. To find that, just head to logogeek.uk forward slash community or search on Facebook for the Logo Geek community and you should find it that way. And if you would like some help and advice with logo design, I recommend checking out the Logo Designers box set. It's a set of six ebooks I put together to help you uh, learn more about the logo design process. That is totally free to download, and you can find it by heading to boxset.logogeek.uk. And by signing up to download that, You'll also be signing up to my newsletter where you'll receive news and information from Logo Geek, uh, such as when a new podcast is released. So that is the best way to keep up to date with what I'm doing with Logo Geek. So that is it for this week, but I'll see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek podcast. <laughs>